FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and online at WGNSRadio.com. This is the WGNS Action Line, talking with Rutherford County newsmakers about what matters most to you. Now your host, Scott Walker. Time right now, 8.17. You're listening to WGNS again on this Tuesday morning, today, the 13th of September. And this morning in studio, we have with us Dr. Michael Stanny, who's going to talk a little bit about cancer, uh, particularly ovarian cancer and how it impacts those here in Rutherford County and beyond. And you are with Ascision St. Thomas right here in Rutherford County. So I guess first, tell us a little bit about your background. What what got you interested in the medical field? Yeah, good morning. Thank you, Scott, for having us on here. Uh, September is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, so we appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, talk about this disease. So my field is uh, GYN oncology. Um, it's just specific to uh, women's cancer uh, surgery and chemotherapy. Um, I guess back in medical school, um, you know, we're exposed to all the different specialties, and um, you know, it's one of those unique fields that uh, kind of encompasses a lot of the care, uh, a lot of cancer care. So we perform surgery. We also administer the chemotherapy afterwards. So um, it's a unique field. Um, as an example, if a patient has breast cancer, they might see a medical oncologist, a surgical oncologist a plastic surgeon, a radiation oncologist. For our fields, uh, we do a lot of that care just within our own office. So um, that's kind of what's uh, one of the appealing aspects for me is that I could just provide a lot of continuity of care to our patients. And, um, you know, the oncology field is always changing. There's always new developments. There's always hope for, for better treatment. So uh, along, you know, along those lines, it just really drew me to, to this field. So with different types of cancer, it seems like you always hear different stories about how the person was diagnosed maybe they didn't feel any pain at all there was nothing really no signs to say of it until it was too late or you hear stories about how somebody went for the routine checkup and that's when they discovered you know something's abnormal here what do you typically see with ovarian cancer yeah that's the um, ovarian cancer is known to be more of a, a silent disease um, you know I think uh, most uh, people are aware of like mammograms we have screening tests for breast cancer colonoscopies you get every five to ten years to screen for for colon cancer unfortunately for ovarian cancer there's no real screening test for that um, now if somebody is identified to be of elevated risk of that mainly through genetic testing um, you know there are special screening things like pelvic ultrasounds and other lab tests that we get. Um, but unfortunately with ovarian cancer, um, just as an example, most people are diagnosed with breast cancer are found early stage and have a good prognosis. Ovarian cancer, three quarters of the time when it's diagnosed, it's already spread. It's already metastatic. Um, stage three is the most common stage of ovarian cancer. And the reason for that is that, um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, patients really don't have symptoms from it until it's, it's already spread. So, you know, the ovaries are organs that are tucked deep in the pelvis. So they don't really push on things. They don't really uh, impact adjacent organs until, you know, they become large or until, you know, the disease is spread. 
Um, so the symptoms that one might have with ovarian cancer are pretty vague. Um, you know, abdominal pain, um, nausea, um, typical, you know, GI symptoms, those sort of things. Um, so, you know, and those are common symptoms. All people have those symptoms at various times of their life. Um, but when it's time to worry is that if something persists for weeks at a time, and um, that's really it's time to, to seek care. And, um, you know, the, at that point, then a workup is usually started. So what, I guess for the common patient who comes to you with, with problems they're experiencing, maybe they are going through nausea, may, maybe they have some abdominal pain, mm-hmm. what, what do you typically see as the diagnosis for those most basic type problems, such as the nausea and the abdominal pain? Because I'm sure there's a lot of things that, you, you know, make people fear the worst at times. Right, yeah. So the, the, the common scenario that I'll see is, you know, as I see a new patient who we, where we suspect they have ovarian cancer. So, um, you know, the, the most common story is, well, the past month or two, I just started feeling like my belly started feeling full. Like all of a sudden I looked pregnant, you know, because it, it's a symptom called uh, ascites, where they have fluid in their abdominal cavity that just kind of grows and grows. So um, with that, it's a, it's a term that we call early satiety meaning that you feel full as soon as you start eating just because the stomach doesn't have as much room to expand because your abdomen is full of fluid. Fluid comes from cancer that, you know, the ovarian cancer that has spread. So, um, so feeling full early called early satiety, abdominal swelling, nausea. Um, you know, most patients I see have experienced those symptoms for, you know, one or two months beforehand. And um, then what happens is they'll, you know, see their doctor. They either go to the emergency department because all of a sudden things have gotten, you know, pretty bad. Maybe they see their primary care doctor who does an exam and notices that their, you know, abdominal girth has increased. So with that, usually comes either a CT scan or a pelvic ultrasound class going to CT scan, you know, we'll see fluid, um, the ovaries, you know, might be enlarged. Um, and these are all the signs that we worry about, uh, that could represent ovarian cancer. Again, Dr. Michael Stanny with us this morning. So to put, I guess, some listeners minds at ease, what are some other issues that you see with, with that bloating feeling with the, uh, you know, the hard stomach and, and loss of appetite? I mean, what other things could, could be persisting. Well, and that's what's hard to, to sort out is that we've all experienced those those symptoms. So I think that the take home is really knowing, you know, how long has it been going on? You know, if, if we're sick for a few days and things are better, well, that's, you know, cancer doesn't come and go. That's something that persists. So, uh, you know, when you have symptoms that persist for weeks at a time, um, you know, that's when it's time to seek attention. And the other thing too is as doctors, you know, we see those, uh, um, those symptoms are quite common. So um, not everybody who has abdominal pain for three days gets a CT scan. Um, So if you see your doctor and they're like, well, let's just wait and see, you know, that doesn't mean that everything's okay. Uh, You know, things persist. That means, hey, go back and see your doctor again. Let you know, make sure they know that you're not better. And now it's time to do the next step. Because I mean, you're right. I mean, a simple GI bug, like all those things that we've all had can have these same symptoms. Um, But if it persists, that's when it's time to not ignore it and, uh, and go back and, and have the workup continued. I think often people who feel like they're in good overall health, they'll put off on annual visits to the doctor. And, yeah. and a lot of times they'll wait to the very last minute to they're in excruciating pain. They'll go to the emergency room, but the emergency room, they're not made for diagnosing cancer. You know, they're there to, I, I guess exactly. that instant 
you know, hey, you, you cut half your arm off, that kind of stuff. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's, um, and especially with COVID, I mean, where everybody was very hesitant to seek medical attention for the past couple of years. I mean, obviously things are pretty much back to normal now, but um, you know, we were seeing a lot of that in all oncology specialties. We're seeing more late diagnoses because people were hesitant to go to the ER for the obvious reason. Lots of patients with COVID there. Um, you know, routine exams, you know, were put off quite a bit um, just for those, you know, people are only getting out if they had to. So, you know, one of the, uh, the unfortunate side effects of, of our COVID lockdown was just later diagnosis of cancers and things just kind of being put off. So how many ovarian cancer cases are there each year across the country and, yeah. and do you have numbers for for tennessee even yeah uh, well so um nationally about twenty five thousand patients are diagnosed with ovarian cancer um for uh, any woman's lifetime risk of ovarian cancer is one in 70. and you're so, talking every year every year about twenty five thousand yeah. mm -hmm. diagnosis okay the um and to put it in perspective i think everybody probably knows somebody with breast cancer um one in eight women one in nine women will get breast cancer so uh Ovarian cancer, not quite as common as breast cancer. Um, however, um, the stage of presentation is quite different. So most patients with breast cancer are found early stage because we have mammograms. You know, we have ways of, of diagnosing that. Ovarian cancer, we don't have great screening tests. So three quarters of the time, again, patients will present and be diagnosed when it's already spread. And, um, and I know you mentioned, you know, doing ultrasounds, things like that in order yeah. to help determine what's going on. But what, what else do you have to do to test and, and make sure, you know, this, this is definitely cancer. Yeah. So, um, a pelvic ultrasound can look at the ovaries and, um, you know, the radiologist can tell, okay, if it's in large cyst, if there are growths within the ovary, I mean, there's definitely radiographic characteristics that, you know, make one worried about ovarian cancer. Um, and what's challenging, and then we also get lab work. There's a lab called a CA125 um, that's fairly specific for ovarian cancer. It's not a perfect test, um, but it's usually part of the workup that a doctor will order as well, you know, if you're worried about ovarian cancer. Now, the unfortunate thing about any ovarian abnormality that we see on an ultrasound is that um, to figure out what's going on means surgery. So um, we keep having analogies to breast cancer. So if you have an abnormal mammogram, you would see your doctor, um, the breast surgeon, they would do a biopsy or the radiologist would do a biopsy, which is a pretty simple outpatient procedure. If we're truly worried about an abnormality on the ovary, that means surgery. So, um, you know, abdominal incisions, remove the ovaries during surgery. Um, the pathologist can do what's called a frozen section where while the patient's still asleep, the pathologist looks at it very quickly under the microscope and says yes or no from a, you know, cancer question standpoint so um, unfortunately you know when there's that concern we either say well okay we're not worried too much about it so we'll just do an ultrasound again in maybe eight weeks um, or no it's you know has the signs that I'm quite worried about so we're gonna schedule you for surgery now so it's either a surgery or not as opposed to an abnormal mammogram which means okay a simple needle procedure and you know without an major anesthesia and that sort of thing so that's why it's, it's always a hard decision of you know jumping to surgery because again it's abdominal procedure that's general anesthesia that's a hospitalization uh, when we're truly worried about something now cyst that's something that that you know happens to a lot of folks a growth of a cyst yeah. can occur and it doesn't mean it's cancer of course right how often does that occur versus 
you know, the actual diagnosis of having ovarian cancer. Yeah. So um, very common uh, for us to see patients just with an ovarian cyst. Now, one of the risk factors for ovarian cancer, like any cancer, is age. So, and one of the cutoffs is, um, you know, premenopausal or postmenopausal. So the average age of menopause is, you know, early 50s, 51, 52. So before menopause, um, you know, every month a woman ovulates. So with that, we can see a little cyst form, which... Um, you know, it's just a normal thing. After menopause, um, you know, the, um, the ovaries do not produce estrogen and ovulation does not occur. So whenever we see a cyst on the ovary after menopause, that's always more concerning. And to break it down a little further, um, there are different types of cysts. Not all cysts are the same. There can be a, a simple cyst, which, you know, think of like a water balloon. You know, it's just a little round structure with fluid inside of it, nothing else there. Or there's a complex cyst, which is like that same water balloon with something inside of it growing. And so if we have a complex cyst, um, you know, that could be cancer. Now, there's a lot of non-cancerous, benign growths, benign cysts that we see on the ovaries. Um, Unfortunately, we don't know what they are unless you do surgery. And a common question for, from patients will be, well, can't we just do a biopsy of it? So um, to get to the ovaries, you know, takes a, you know, it's buried deep in the pelvis. So um, it's sometimes, most time, impractical for, like, say, a radiologist to do a biopsy of that, like through the skin to get to the ovaries. Plus, if it is cancer um, and you popped a needle into a structure buried in the pelvis, then we just spread the cancer, and that's also bad for prognosis. So, again, if there's that concern, we have to talk about surgery or just following it, um, and that's kind of how we, we would, you know, if we see a new patient who has a cyst, that's usually the algorithm. You know, I, I'm curious. It seems like over the past 10 or 15 years, Women have been waiting longer. A lot of women have been waiting longer and longer, longer to have children. I, I mean, now mm -hmm. you're hearing, you know, 35, 40 years old having sometimes their first child or their second child. Is there any correlation with, you know, birth and, and having ovarian cancer or is there any tie there? Yeah, there. Um, so there are definitely risk factors. Um, one of those is what we call nulliparity or so let me say the converse of it having more children is protective against ovarian cancer women who have never been pregnant have a slightly higher risk of ovarian cancer compared to um, someone who um, has had multiple children the reason for that or part of the reason for that is um, the number of ovulations so um, every time a woman ovulates there is an event that happens in the ovaries um, kind of a opportunity if you will for there to be abnormal cell division um, which results in genetic mutations, which then result in ovarian cancer. So ovarian cancer, or actually any cancer, is, is a genetic disease. There's been some you know, ab abnormal DNA event that's happened that's caused the cancer or caused the cells to grow forever, immortally. And so the more times one ovulates, the more opportunities there are for there to be abnormal cell division and more chances for cancer to develop. So, um, so to answer your question, um, if you've never been pregnant, um, there's a slightly higher risk of getting ovarian cancer compared to women who have had multiple pregnancies. Um, it's a slight increase, but it's not like, you know, a huge, huge, um, high likelihood of getting ovarian cancer. Interesting. I, I, I never knew that. So uh, there's a slightly less likely chance of having ovarian cancer if you've given birth, let's say, 
two kids, three kids, whatever the case is, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to waiting till you're 35, giving birth for the first time. Yeah, and um, along those same lines, uh, if you've been on birth control pills, um, it's actually very protective. Even only six months to a year of being on birth control pills, um, it shows a significant decrease, maybe 40%, um, lifetime decrease of getting ovarian cancer. So there's something to decrease number of ovulations with um, uh, protective effects uh, against ovarian cancer. So even if you were on birth control, let's say from age 20 to 25, mm-hmm. then you, you got married, had your first child, that's going to help you put you or help to put you in that lower category, lower risk category of getting ovarian cancer. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting that um, you know any exposure to birth control pills uh, does tend to lend to decreased risk of ovarian cancer, and there might be something to the estrogen. I'm sorry, the um, birth control pills have two hormones: estrogen, progesterone. This gets into the weeds a little bit, but there's some thoughts that the progesterone components um, helps to kind of kill off possibly some of the bad ovarian cells and prevent them from turning into cancer. So um, there's some interesting thoughts in uh, you know, uh, pharmacology studies on you know why that might be the case. But um, yeah, it just gets back to the fact there are some interventions we can do to, to decrease your risk of ovarian cancer. Again, Dr. Michael Stanny with us this morning talking about ovarian cancer and it seems like in this day and age, we hear a lot of like infomercials, commercials about uh, testosterone treatment for men. And we hear about treatment for women as well, uh, hormone replacement therapy and so forth. Are those types of therapies, do they lend themselves to uh, helping to prevent stuff like cancer? Or do they tend to lean more towards, well, you know, this could actually, you know, lead to cancer. Yeah, for ovarian cancer, there doesn't seem to be as much of a tie between exposure to hormones and development of cancer. Um, There might be some thoughts with other types of cancer, um, uterine cancer, endometrial cancer, another type of um, disease that we treat. We do see a correlation between um, excess estrogen and development of cancer, and there's kind of a number of ways that happens. But for ovarian cancer, we really don't see that tie. So, um, you know, there's, again, other risk factors, but hormones uh, for ovarian cancer, there doesn't seem to be a strong correlation or or, or, uh, causation. So I, I'm curious for, you know, parents out there listening, is it a wise thing to put your, your daughter on birth control at a certain age because that could lessen the, you know, possibility of her getting ovarian cancer? I mean, sex reason aside, because I know that's a whole nother topic for parents, but, right. <laughs> but could that help reduce the chance of, of that child? Yeah, I mean, uh, birth control pills, just to say to reduce your risk of ovarian cancer, I mean, that's, uh, again, it's not that common. So I would say, um, you know, just with that, it's like not solely the reason, um, you know, but just for the purpose of, you know, looking at one's lifetime risk of ovarian cancer, you know, birth control pills shows to be protective, you know, at that age. And that's kind of a, I I would say, a separate issue um, and not enough of a reason to say, yeah, you should be on it. And again, what is that age, I guess the average age that you see a patient typically, you know, get that diagnosis of ovarian cancer if they were to get it? Yeah. So um, 
I think 61, 62 is kind of the average age for all women who have been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Now, we talked about some risk factors for that. One of those is genetics. And um, the, the BRCA mutation is one that um, is probably the most common one that we know about that can cause or that's associated with ovarian cancer. And the reason I bring that up is because in women with the BRCA1, BRCA1 mutation, that average age of diagnosis is actually age 51. So um, it happens more commonly and at a younger age in women with the BRCA mutation. Now, the BRCA mutation has gotten a little bit of press from some celebrities, uh, Angelina Jolie, Christina Applegates, you know, years ago, um, you know, had, uh, were, were public about um, their diagnosis and kind of how they dealt with that. And so... While we, you know, again, for breast cancer, we have mammograms, we can try to uh, focus on early detection uh, with women who have a genetic predisposition to ovarian cancer. The real goal is to not find it early, but to prevent it altogether. So with that, you know, if we've identified somebody with a genetic mutation, we actually discussed removing ovaries at a young age, unfortunately, to prevent them from getting cancer. So... Now, how young? Well, unfortunately, at age 35 or when you're finished with childbearing, um, someone with a BRCA1 mutation, that's actually when we have the discussion about removing their ovaries, which obviously has many implications uh, from a hormone standpoint and from a fertility standpoint. So it gets quite individualized, um, you know, when one has a BRCA mutation. But to compare it to one who does not, you know, earlier we mentioned it's a 1 in 70 lifetime risk of getting ovarian cancer. If you have a BRCA mutation, it's a 40% lifetime risk. So it's almost a flip of a coin to get a disease that, unfortunately, you know, is found when it's already spread. So that's why in those patients we have the, the hard discussion and have to make the hard decision about doing something preventative at a very young age. Uh, let's talk more about that after we come back from this break. And I'm, and also I want to go back to, uh, you know, that hard talk you're talking about. And if someone decides at age 35 to move forward with this because they have a 40% increased chance of, of getting ovarian cancer, what type of hormone therapy would they then have to be on for the remainder of their life? And, and how does that impact the life of somebody? Um, so let's talk a little bit more about that when we come back. Again, our guest today, Dr. Michael Stanny with Ascision St. Thomas Rutherford right here in Murfreesboro. And you serve at, I guess, not only the St. Thomas Rutherford, but do you also serve in Nashville as Na well? Yes, sir. Yeah, we're in Nashville and, and Rutherford. Okay. Well, we will be right back right after this break. Time right now, 839. We're News Radio WGNS 100.5, 101.9, 1450. Online and on your phone at WGNSradio.com. Mostly sunny skies here for this afternoon with a high in the mid-80s. Northwest winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Tonight, mostly clear, low near 55. I'm meteorologist Jennifer Wojcicki on News Radio WGNS. Currently, it's 52. Come by our store, Music World and Drummer's Den. We're a full-line music instrument store with well over 5,000 square feet packed with great instruments in every category. In guitars, we're your local dealer for the two top acoustic guitar brands in the world, Martin and Taylor. We've got the best selection and prices anywhere in the state of Tennessee on these. This is Dave Kivanemi at Music World and Drummer's Den in Murfreesboro, 2762 South Church Street, across from Indian Hills Golf Course. Hi, this is Peter Demas with Demas's Family Restaurants. Do you know somebody who has moved far away and is missing eating at Demas's? 
Well, Demas's Family Restaurants now offers many of our sauces and some of our food, such as pot roast and soup, to be shipped all across the nation. It's very simple. You just go to DemasFamilyKitchen.com and you can send an order to anybody as a gift all across this nation. You can send an order to anybody. Go to DemasFamilyKitchen.com. If you can dream it, Fair Construction can turn it into reality. Shop local, Fair Construction Company. I'm Ron Hall. Investing in property can be nerve-wracking. It does not have to be. Fair Construction offers high-quality craftsmanship, quick response, and attention to detail. Our goal is to keep your expenses low while focusing on our attention on high-quality services. I'm Ron Hall. Shop local. Let our family business help you. Fair Construction Company. Good morning. Still quite a bit of traffic volume trying to get past that earlier truck fire in Rutherford County on 24 westbound. It's going to be there near Highway 96. Again, still a lot of flashing lights over there as they clean up that mess from earlier. And we've also had a couple of wrecks out here in this same area. Again, it's been struggling and it still is heavy on 24 westbound at Highway 96 trying to get through this section of Rutherford County. It's heavy as expected 40 west here at uh, Spence Lane. Hey, Ripley's is hiring for all 10 attractions in the Smoky Mountains. Check them out online at ripleys.com. I'm Commander Chuck with your on-time traffic. If you're looking for an authentic relationship with financial experts who genuinely care about your unique needs, Capstar Bank is for you. Capstar Bank is dedicated to the people of this community. Capstar Bank wants to help you reach your financial goals because at Capstar Bank, you matter to us. Capstar Bank, 2230 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, capstarbank.com. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Right now that time, 8.42, you're listening to WGNS. Again on this Tuesday morning, and in studio with us, Dr. Michael Stanny with St. Thomas Rutherford. And again, you are also... Uh, I, I guess you do operations, all that stuff, uh, not only in Rutherford County, Nashville as well, like you were mentioning. Yep, yep. So it, before the break, we were talking about risk factors and if somebody falls in that category where, you know, there's, let's say their mom had ovarian cancer, their grandmother had it, they're at an increased risk for, for getting ovarian cancer and that tough discussion of deciding well what do we do next you know what's that next step to take what all goes along with that and and then the aftermath of the decisions made all right great questions and many times a very hard uh discussion so um you know you brought up family history which is very important so if one has a family member or multiple family members with with cancer um you know genetic testing uh fortunately nowadays is very readily available multiple companies offer the testing and as time has gone on we've learned more and more about what a genetic mutation means for your lifetime risk of cancer um and it varies anywhere from, you know, BRCA1 mutation, 40% lifetime risk. I mean, that's incredibly high. Um, there are some other rare mutations that maybe have a 5% lifetime risk, um, which, you know, I feel like sometimes when I, I, I talk to patients, it's less as a medical doctor and more as a philosopher. I'm like, okay, how do you accept risk? You know, like we get in the car, we drive home, you know, we're not really worried about that. 
but people die, you know, when, when car crashes. So, but it's not a very common thing. So we like, okay, we, we can accept that risk. But when you have a 40% lifetime risk of getting a disease that has, you know, very, uh, very bad prognosis, um, yet you're very young, you know, age 35, it's like, you're kind of rolling the dice. So like how, cause you're going to be, um, you know, like a bit of a time bomb, like, it, and it might never go off, and then things are fine. Or, you know, at age forty, you could suddenly get diagnosed with metastatic ovarian cancer in a situation that could have been prevented. Um, so, as an example, so for BRCA one mutation at age thirty-five, that is, you know, the the recommended age to have um, ovaries removed. Now, you mentioned hormone replacement therapy, and it gets challenging because um, with the BRCA mutation, um, you're also at a very high risk of breast cancer as well, um, anywhere from 60 to 70%. So um, many times, uh, patients, if they, um, they're diagnosed with the BRCA mutation because they've had breast cancer. And if you've had breast cancer, you know, we talked about hormones a little bit earlier, there is an association of hormones and breast cancer. So it gets very challenging in patients who've had breast cancer and a BRCA mutation because after surgery, it's usually not recommended that they receive hormones. So the average age of menopause is, you know, 51, 52. So we've upped that clock by a good 15 years. Um, and, um, you know, the, the symptoms of menopause hot flashes, mood swings, irritability. I mean, there's just, it's not a, it's not a, anything that people are wanting to be in menopause. And when you've had no history of breast cancer and you're going through menopause, having um, uh, bad symptoms from it, hormone replacement therapy is a very reasonable thing to do for a short term. Um, but at age 35 with breast cancer, usually it's not recommended to ever be on hormone replacement therapy. So that, that becomes challenging. There are some non-hormonal treatments that don't work as well as, um, as hormones. Um, so there are some other options. Um, but yeah, in general, we have to avoid hormones in that case. Now, patients who have not had breast cancer, usually we think it is safe to do hormones. Of course, we do worry about breast cancer risks. Many patients at that time are talking to surgeons about a risk-reducing mastectomy where breasts are removed with reconstruction afterwards. So, you know, in that setting, we think hormones would be safe because they are decreasing the risk of breast cancer with a risk-reducing mastectomy. And when you talk about hormones, of course, hormones, like you were saying, you know, you could have those mood swings if the hormone levels are not correct and and so forth. <clears throat> it seems like that's a pretty big puzzle that you then dive into trying to figure out, well, what should the hormone levels be for this person? How do you regulate them? What medicines work? What don't work? I mean, you're talking about a whole nother sea of issues that comes up after things like cancer. Yeah, and, and part of the discussion is estrogen, progesterone. There, there's two main hormones, um, you know, for, uh, after menopause, depending on whether or not you have a hysterectomy, which hysterectomy means removal of just the uterus. Um, the medical term for removing the ovaries is a bilateral, so pingo-oophorectomy. So that, that's a mouthful, I know. But um, one of the other misconceptions is, well, I was, you know, I had a total hysterectomy. Well, that just means removal of the uterus only. That has no implications on the ovaries. So, um, you know, if I'll see a patient and I'm like, well, I've had a total hysterectomy, but they still have ovaries. Well, that's, you know, their ovaries are not removed. So if one has had a hysterectomy, um, 
they don't need progesterone um, because the progesterone component bounces the estrogen. So when we're talking to patients about doing a risk-reducing surgery uh, to remove the ovaries, because that those are the organs at risk for cancer, many times we're talking about doing a hysterectomy at the same time because it simplifies what hormones they get afterwards. Um, you know, if they still have their uterus, they need two hormones. Maybe that increases risk of breast cancer a little bit more uh, compared to estrogen only. Um, so you're right. I mean, it does get to be a complicated um, conversation because there's so many different algorithms based off what, what we do surgically. So those who have had the hysterectomy, it's, I guess, easier to balance the end result, the outcome as far as hormones go. And, and those who have not had the hysterectomy, you then consider, well, maybe we should have a hysterectomy as well whenever we remove yeah, the ovaries. It's interesting because if you have the BRCA mutation, you're not really at risk for uterine cancer. I mean, there might be some slight increased risk for some rare types, but um, it's not really the cancer risk-reducing part of the procedure. However, when it comes to hormone management afterwards, it does sometimes simplify things. So I would say the majority of patients decided to have the full surgery with, reduce, with removing ovaries and uterus because it does simplify hormone management afterwards. So when you start talking about hormones and all of that, I guess one of the thoughts that comes to mind is, well, the thyroid, how does that play a role in all of this? And, and how does that, I don't know, because that, that's another one of those mysteries out there. Yeah, um, fortunately, there's not much of an interaction between thyroid hormone management and ovarian management. The, the pituitary gland is kind of up in the brain managing all that. So as long as that's working correctly, you know, thyroid and ovaries and all, all the hormones should be intact. In and if that is not working correctly, because I recently read an article where women who had breast implants, often some of them had increased chances of, of having... Uh, thyroid-related problems later in life. And mm. I, I don't know if there's a lot of studies on that or I just happened to read the right article at the right time. Yeah, and no, I'm not aware of that correlation, so that's interesting. And then going back to that diagnosis of ovarian cancer, you, you were talking about the different stages, mm -hmm. stage three, stage four. Well, what are the chances of survival and, and returning back to a normal life after you go through, you know, having the cancer removed? Or is there the biggest risk of it spreading if you are at stage four? And how much does it spread? Yeah. So, you know, like we mentioned earlier, majority of patients are diagnosed with metastatic disease. So what happens next? Well, chemotherapy and surgery are the two main um, components of management. And so there's different ways of doing that. We can start with chemotherapy um, to shrink down the tumors. And then we do a, a pretty big surgery uh, called a debulking. And it's a weird term, but what happens during that surgery is that our goal of that is to remove all visible tumor that we see. These can be, you know, three to six hour long surgeries uh, where we're removing tumor, sometimes uh, doing a bowel resection, sometimes, you know, kind of scraping tumor off the diaphragm in the upper abdomen. And these are kind of like morbid things I'm describing, but all the efforts are to remove all the tumor that we see. Um, so that's one component of the management and then chemotherapy as well. Um, after diagnosis of ovarian cancer, you're looking at probably a four to six month treatment course. And that includes the surgery and the chemotherapy. 
Um, and then after that, um, there are, um, fortunately, in the past several years, been some developments for what we call maintenance treatments. And so that's a pill. It's kind of like a chemotherapy pill that one can take afterwards. Um, there have been advances with identifying uh, tumors that are more sensitive to these pills. And the, the, the term for these are called PARP inhibitors. And PARP, stand, it's P-A-R-P, it stands for um, a certain type of um, a molecule that, that, that it's targeting. Um, so, but PARP inhibitors is the, the category of this maintenance drug. And so a couple months after we finish the treatment, um, patients will then go on that. And fortunately, in those who are on it, there's found to be a pretty big survival advantage. Now, I, would, I just tell patients in general, once one is diagnosed with metastatic ovarian cancer, the chances of it coming back are more likely than not. So all of our strategies are for cure. So we, that's why we do a very big surgery. That's why we do very aggressive chemotherapy. And that's why we focus on some sort of maintenance afterwards because our best shots at beating this cancer is at the beginning. And it's, it's a long road, it's a bumpy road, but um, it's kind of our best chance um, at this time. I guess one of those fears whenever that word cancer is mentioned is, well, how is this impacting other parts of my body and, mm -hmm. and how, if at all, has it spread? And then what else is going to have to be removed or changed within my body in order to get better? Yeah. So, you know, regarding the chemotherapy, um, you know, you hear the word chemotherapy, um, you automatically think nausea and vomiting and be throwing up all the time and feeling miserable. Well, the good news, at least, for the typical chemotherapies that we use is that people usually do not have nausea and vomiting. Two reasons. It's not as common with these chemotherapies, um, but also we've got very good medicines that have been developed over the time to help prevent that. Um, hair loss does happen always with our upfront uh, chemotherapy. And then sometimes there could be some long-term side effects of numbness or tingling in your hands. It's called neuropathy. So those are kind of the biggest things that we worry about from a treatment standpoint. From a surgery standpoint, um, you know, it, it can be a pretty big surgery. Um, you know, we um, actually, there's been some advances in what we do during surgery. One of the newer things that's out there is something called um, HIPEC, and that stands for Hyperthermic Intraperitoneal Chemotherapy. It's been around for a couple decades, more so with um, GI and bowel cancers, but um, there have been some recent studies looking at ovarian cancer um, and use of that. The way that works is during the surgery, um, we remove all the tumor, we, you know, we, we feel that it's all been removed, and we place catheters during the surgery into the abdominal cavity and then close things up. And catheters are just like long tubes that allow an infusion and an exit of fluid. The fluid contains the chemotherapy. So it's a heated chemotherapy bath for about 90 minutes at the end of the surgery. Um, and the studies that have looked at this have shown there to also be a survival advantage with that um, for about a, it basically adds a year of survival advantage, you know, when we do that compared to patients who have not gotten that. It's not appropriate for every patient, for every patient with ovarian cancer, but it is a newer development and it's kind of a, you know, it's a weird concept to think that you're putting chemotherapy directly in the abdomen. It's just kind of staying there and it's, it's heated. There's all these, um, 
thoughts of um, the heat activates the chemotherapy to work better to kill more cancer cells um, and again it lasts for 90 minutes then after that the chemotherapy is pulled out of the abdominal cavity things are kind of washed out and then um, and then that's it but that's an extra component to the to the upfront management of ovarian cancer again dr. Michael Stanny with us this morning so is there pain that goes along with that heat-related therapy that's involved in that cancer treatment. Yeah, fortunately not. I mean, the, the patients sleep during the, the surgery. Um, afterwards, um, you know, we've been doing it for almost a couple of years now, and, um, you know, most patients um, do well. Um, it is, you know, you think, wow, it's really making it a long surgery. How are patients doing afterwards? But um, fortunately, um, you know, patients are, are doing well with this. And for those, you know, years ago, whenever that word cancer came up and the treatment of cancer, you thought instantly about pain, somebody going through a lot of painful treatments, but today it's quite different, right? Yeah. Um, you know, most patients who are on chemotherapy are able to work. They might need a few days off, um, you know, just from feeling fatigued for the few days afterwards. But I'm always amazed, um, you know, how resilient patients are, um, you know, while, while they're on treatment. So uh, there, there's a lot of hesitancy, you know, when I mention chemotherapy to a lot of patients like, oh, you know, I know so-and-so who had chemo and it killed them. I'm like, okay, well, let's hold on here. Like, yeah. this is not, you know, and, you know, cancers are different. There's different chemotherapies, so a lot of misconceptions about um, you know various regimens. But I can say, for most patients, and especially you know uh, when you're diagnosed with ovarian cancer up front, many times you have fluid in your abdomen, you're feeling sick, you're having nausea, and um, I tell patients this, and they don't believe me, but I'm like, as soon as we start the chemotherapy you're going to feel better, you know, because all of a sudden the fluid starts melting away, the tumors start getting smaller, and they, in fact, start feeling better. So um, it's always nice to see patients like, wow, okay, I do feel better now, despite getting chemotherapy. So as we close this morning, for somebody listening who maybe ovarian cancer does run in their family, what are those first signs they need to look for, and how often should should they actually go in to, let's say, the gynecologist or yeah. just their their regular general practitioner? Yeah, if you think you're at all at risk based off family history, um, it's always good to get genetic testing, um, which again now is very readily available. Primary care doctors, OBGYNs, all people have access to this testing. And if it's positive for um, a gene, and there's now probably a dozen genes out there beyond BRCA that we mentioned that does elevate your risk of ovarian cancer. So screening strategies, ultrasounds, lab tests called the CA125, usually at six month intervals. Um, it's kind of the best we can do from screening. And then listen to your body. Um, if you're just, don't feel right, you know, abdominal pain, nausea, GI symptoms that persist for weeks, you know, even though you've seen your doctor and they said, hey, everything's fine, if it persists, that's when it's time to go back um, to make sure that the, the full workup is done. And what about looking at things like your white blood cell count or other numbers whenever you get just, you know, regular blood tests done? What what should you be looking for if, let's say, for example, the doctor doesn't mention, hey, you know, you're elevated in this area and this area? Yeah, unfortunately, there aren't any great blood test for ovarian cancer outside of one known as a CA-125. There's a couple others out there that are you know, what we refer to as tumor markers and there are other types of cancers that have blood tests 
pancreatic cancer, breast cancer, those have some tumor markers that are specific for that. Um, ovarian cancer really just has one mainstream one, and that's a CA125. So number one, look at your family history, and then I, I guess number two, just monitor your body and how you feel. Exactly. The biggest thing to do. Again, Dr. Michael Stanny with us this morning with Physician St. Thomas Rutherford, and uh, how can somebody get a hold of you? Just go to the St. Thomas website, I guess? That's right. Yeah, we're in two locations, St. Thomas Midtown Hospital and then St. Thomas Rutherford. And um, yeah, if you're all concerned, please, uh, please uh, reach out. Sounds good. Well, thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having us.